this is new customer that's out there, which is a kind of like a financially enabled person who lives in a third world country. They got a lucky break. They minted a board ape when it was a hundred bucks to mint. They just held it and they made 200, 300 grand and they got the ape coin distribution. And I think there's a lot of these people. And I think we undervalue it. And it's the new kind of class of democratized risk where they can have access to these opportunities. And I think that's a growing channel where crypto is much, much better than the stock market. Welcome to the Five Year Frontier podcast, a preview of the future through the eyes of the innovators shaping our world. Through short, insight-packed interviews, I seek to bring you a glimpse of what a key industry could look like five years out. I'm your host, Daniel Darling, a venture capitalist at Focal, where I spend my days with founders at the very start of their journey to transform an industry. The best have a distinct vision of what's to come, a guiding North Star they're building towards, and that's what I'm here to share with you. Today's episode is about the future of money and finance. In it, we cover topics including AI's role in hyper-personalized finance, the new products that are coming out as a result of increased access to user data through open banking, what diehard developers are building during the crypto winter, and the intersection of gaming and economics. Our guide will be Fred Shabesta, founder and chairman of Finder, a comparison website helping consumers find the right financial products for them from credit cards to home loans to health insurance. Started in Australia, Founder has expanded to the US, the UK, and beyond 10 million users evolving to offer consumers a centralized place to manage all of their finances. All of this was achieved by Fred and his team without raising a single dollar of outside capital and running profitable from day one. That was until Finder's $80 million seed round at half a billion dollar valuation more than a dozen years later. Fred is a prolific builder of technology, living at the far-flung corners of the internet and leading Finder's innovation efforts. He has founded multiple companies invested in multiple projects in the financial world from crypto exchanges to gaming. A best-selling author and original thinker, I'm excited to have Fred on the show to take a wider look at the evolving world of money and finance. Fred, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Dan, it's an honor and a pleasure, always. Let's talk about the transition you recently did from the executive kind of CEO position at Finder into one much more focused on innovation and what you describe as mass experimentation and creation. Why is that approach so important to you and to Finder's overall success? It's a great one. I think in the beginning, some of the history behind Finder was it was actually part of a collection of about 20 plus experiments that was done on the internet. You know, a whole series of domain names, a Sudoku site, there was a Mother's Day present site, a sports betting site. And that sort of fervor and creation and that experimentation has always been like my way of doing things. You know, I like touching new things. I like experimenting, unpacking things and putting things out there and seeing what happens. And I think you've know, been doing a lot of experiments around AI with that, like actually using the tools, actually building products. And none of that's actually been released. So it's sort of, you know, watch this space for those kind of things. But, you know, I couldn't tell you which one's going to succeed either. I have no idea. They are very venture, experimental, extremely high alpha, my best ideas and efforts and best team that I can put together to invent with velocity, with an edge, 
and see what happens. For me, it's intoxicating, but the market commands that. They want something new. Containing ourselves to find a for a moment and before we zoom out to the wider financial industry, we're like right now people are going to finder.com to discover and compare different financial products, whether it be a credit card, an insurance product, essentially you're optimizing their decision process. Now, how will that evolve in the coming years and will this matching process be abstracted away by AI? Recently, there was an acquisition for Snoop. Snoop was by a financial services company in the UK. They were very prodigious in their insights and ideas around people's transactions and making suggestions and nudges. I think it's, again, not the biggest business for a certain segment you know, who, of people who deeply care and are concerned. I think the biggest growth area where I think there's a lot of movement still is credit scores. Huge business in the UK, huge in the US, and then growing in the US, in Australia. Also in Southeast Asia, new credit bureaus being rolled out. You know, when I was in Thailand a couple of weeks ago, they're working to roll out their first credit bureau. They don't even have one. And and so so what that'll bring is a large amount of innovation of new products, financial services, and then the surrounding services that accompany that. I do think that dramatically will be again a growth area in the next five ten years. So automatically switching between different service providers as a service, I'm suddenly offered a cheaper rate. And you pay for it. What does that look like? Maybe unpack that a little bit more. You sign up, subscribe, and if they find you, they're obviously monitoring your, your service. And if they find you a better deal, they'll automatically switch you. It's sort of auto switching. That's sort of kind of what it's called. And there are a few of those services set up, but they've sort of been bought by different organizations. But I don't know whether they're, again, it's a very niche segment. What about banks and our existing relationship with banks, how is that going to evolve over the next five years? I think banks kind of took a step back. They were like really like reaching a little bit so past their skis and everyone got a bit annoyed. Now they've kind of gone, hey, let's go back to basics and actually go and try and fix some of the real core problems, like just <laughs> making it a bit easier to go and deal with them, you know, getting it right more often than wrong. Do banking better. Why do you need me to sign up a form with my name and date of birth when I've been banking with you forever. And that's just because of a legacy two systems that got built and they don't talk to each other and it's huge amounts of technical debt. They were the first fintechs, right? Banks were the first fintechs. They took us from pieces of paper to databases and then they put us on the internet. And then they've got this debt. You know, They've got this debt they need to pay down. So I think banks are going to take this organic step back to fixing fundamental things that should work in a certain way. And then I think what they'll do is to stop, they'll sort of fast follow and see what works and then go and follow it up with a really beautiful product. And it might be five to six years late after everyone else, but they'll crush it with it. And I think JP Morgan's doing this quite well in the US. I don't think that banks, I think they kind of found where they were good and where they were not. I think there's a lot of where they're not is in their core, and they're going to go back and fix that. The open banking initiative is a really fascinating dynamic to layer on top of that, which essentially is around banks sharing user data through secure APIs and enabling third-party apps and developers to build on top of it from that. As that steadily rolls out country by country, like what new products do you see being built on that? And do you also see the banks then rolling that into their own platforms and acquiring them and that being a big part of how they innovate. Open banking has you know, been live in the UK for quite some time. It's live in Australia. It's standard in India. India is wild in terms of payment systems and stuff like that there. Singapore, I think, is close. Canada, New Zealand, 
America has it written in Dodd-Frank, but it won't do it for a very long time. What's happened, I think, is, you know, the banks are like, oh, this is really aggressive. But then now we've gone, hey, it's really what you do with it. And they've started using it as well with their credit application process, with the serviceability calculations, with the collection of documents, as opposed to just collecting the data directly and getting better data. I think you're also seeing credit bureaus leveraging the data in terms of adding new and interesting fields and data points that they weren't before that goes towards your score and serviceability. You're going to see better decisioning, more intricate models, more automation. And then what that will sort of open up is a whole variety of new people able to access credit where they were probably pushed down to the lower quality and higher rates market. And and I think overall, that then gives people a, you know, a much more of a sense of control. And I think it'll change this one-size-fits-all sort of market that people kind of feel and perceive into a much more customized finance market. Personalized finance, I think, is the mecca where everyone eventually wants to go. It's a very hard thing to go and do, but I think CDR is a massive first step to going and bringing that to life. And what does that look like if we do get there, if we are in that personalized finance future? I think it's predictive models. It's products not, they're all got different thresholds and feature sets that are unlocked and are customized to different people. And it's built from the ground up sort of modular products from the beginning. I think that's a really tough concept to execute because of the way the systems are built today. But I think there will be banks and providers that go and carve this modularized products where today the model is product managers sit behind a desk, read all these reports, and basically put a product out there and then market it really hard and guess what will work to a large degree. You know, pretty educated guesses, but at the end of the day, it's a guess. Whereas can you make a construct where someone can personalize their product for themselves and it's in the right heuristics, it's in the right modeling, and with enough data, the bank feels very comfortable to provide that product and start to switch things on and off because of profitability thresholds and it's programmed into the model and they know the collections and the, a lot more data and insight and comfortableness so that you can really just choose. And there's probably going to come to a place where you're going to see, to some extent, rewards programs, I think, are an area of dramatic upheaval that need to be completely upended. They haven't changed in forever. And I think that idea then can really go towards that. You know, imagine analyzing your spending and programming and personalizing someone's rewards program. So is that you know they go skiing every year, so get them some skis. And I think you're talking a whole different dimension of alignment between customer and the bank and, you know, the products they're getting. That's such a powerful concept and again simple to articulate and probably very hard to execute. Is that going to be a collaboration between, let's say, a bank like JP Morgan developing that in that modularized way with a third parties from outside that are plugging into the ecosystem, leveraging the open banking data networks and all that kind of infrastructure below? Well, how does it sort of all come together? I think there's a lot of layers to it. I think the first steps that we've started to see now is the richness of the transactions and of the data. So adding on top of it layers, and I think we've seen that with a lot of, lot of banks, they've really started to do that and really add the, the tagging. It has to be a partnership in that one. That, that's, it's too broad because the bank doesn't see every single transaction. And then serviceability, 
trending and targeting, I think, that comes from that, from the marketing perspective. People who gamble late at night, maybe you don't want to insure them for car insurance. You know, <laughs> I've heard some really interesting trends around people who buy really late night Uber Eats and tend to be much more reckless drivers. And who knows why? Like, like oh, there's some really, really weird connections that you can make. I think the infrastructure is there. It's not to the level yet of what we're talking about in terms of personalized finance. I think it's getting there. And I think there's a bunch more collaborations and some pretty big infrastructure providers that are needed in order to go to that level. I think the banks are pretty rudimentary. I think some of the fintechs in India do some pretty amazing stuff. Is there anyone that you can point to that are sort of leading the charge on this? I think there's a lot of potential, but I do think India is right. That's because of the infrastructure the government provides is so good. It's so good for so many people. And so you've got a big head start. Talk to me about India. You mentioned it a few times. If they've got such a head start in terms of the infrastructure and what they're providing, what does it look like to be banking in India and sort of that kind of financial world for them? Firstly, most people use one of these apps, you know, phone pay is a great example huge audience people who are even begging on the street will <laughs> have a phone pay qr code <laughs> at the level i was thinking about that the other day about people who beg for cash when they're probably revenues are down because people are just aren't caring as much and if they had a little qr code or something they would probably increase the transactions you've got government ids digitalized open banking standardized you've got a payments platform from the government again standardized and all this stuff you can plug into and build on. That's a big set of core infrastructure. The ID, payments in, payments out, again, very challenging in many countries, particularly painful in the US, like expensive and painful and unreliable. You can get an ACH and claim it back after three days. That's pretty annoying, right? And the way it works is literally someone puts out a, out a broadcast and then you can choose to go and get it or not. As a bank, you need to find it. It's quite backward, right? Whereas this is like a government-initiated system. You'd much rather use it rather than even a credit card. It's just integrated. It's a confluence of many things brought together in one. And then it's, it's really quite a super app in terms of what you can do. Another challenging part for all financial innovation lies around addressing identity and privacy. How do you see that getting solved or, or fleshed out over the coming years? A massive problem. A lot of countries, we talked about even some countries not even having a credit bureau still today. Then you've got just the identity of a person. Who are they? Who they say they are. So I think there's kind of this transition of partially some new markets of a world identity where you're kind of like a resident of the world. That's one emerging trend I think is happening. You've got another one I think where you've got like, you know, world coin where you're kind of trying to identify people through iris scans, proof of personhood. There's some very nice stuff with AI and proving that someone is a live person as well is quite proof of life. More and more automated services that can determine whether or not someone, you know, you upload an ID, you move around, blink your eyes. And I think that's a really hard problem considering, you know, you've got a lot of, all this new AI, deep fakes. I think that stuff is, that's a really hard problem to go and start to solve. And I think it's going to get harder. And I think that's where there's things like WorldCoin in terms of, Things you can't fake easily like iris scans will get closer to the mark. And I think with the proliferation of generative AI, you're going to see more and more replicated or fake content that you can't actually determine which is fake and which is not. And I do think the blockchain will get be a really great use case to go 
and determine what is real and what's not. If, Dan, you put this podcast up, how do I know that you, Dan, actually put this podcast up if you didn't prove who you said you were? And then, you know, and, and a bot or AI went and replicated it and changed the questions and got you to say certain things that people want, they wanted for people to hear. And who could determine which was the one that was the original or not? That kind of stuff, I think, particularly in scams, security, social engineering, and just protecting things which need to be protected is going to be more and more challenging. And I think that's where this decentralized identity and this growing space of the need to prove that someone is who they say they are. I think it's a growing market. Look, we can't talk about finance without talking about crypto. And you've been deep in that space since the beginning, both as a founder, an advocate, an investor. And today, a lot of people are disenfranchised overall by Web3. And we find ourselves deep in this crypto winter. What are people building during this winter period? What have you seen? What have been some of the projects? What's the atmosphere in that? And what is the promise that they're looking to, to achieve out of it? Yeah, I just came back from ETH Paris. There were many, many hackathons there. There were 5,000 people at the conference. I couldn't actually get a ticket. <laughs> and there were probably another 5,000 people around the conference. It was booming. You could just go to a bar or go to a brasserie or go to a restaurant and people were talking crypto. Paris is just filled up with crypto. The hackathons you know, were real engineers building. The big hackathon had a 1,000 engineers building and they were in the old stock exchange in Paris, you know, which is empty now because it's all digitized. And, and I think that's quite an interesting metaphor in and of itself. And that gives you the, the fervor. That gives you the, the feeling, right? They had to turn away thousands of people. They just couldn't fit them in. It's thriving. That's the feeling on the ground. And are they building certain types of infrastructure or trying to solve certain kinds of plumbing questions? Is that where they're trying to focus their time? So I think there's continued work massively on scaling and speed very hard problems mathematical problems proofs storage security so the, those kinds of engineers are needed and are massively engaged i think cross-chain protocols big and the messaging between them lots of talk about that wormhole layer zero just lots and lots chain link just rolled out something on this as well around cross-chain messaging solving that problem as well Big, lots of movement, simplifies it for the customer. Beautiful. Big problem. Liquid staking, derivatives. So you're staking coins and you want to be able to trade them and move them around. Again, another massive growth area. Lots of movement. Lots of movement. Privacy as well. Seeing a lot of projects in privacy. Private transactions. You've got MEV, you know, which is really about sniping people's orders when they're trading on chain. I'd say that's the shorthand version and protecting that and creating answers to it. If people are heads down building, solving hardcore mathematical problems next couple of years, really focusing on those efforts, then you have all of this innovation on the wider traditional fintech industry. We talked about open banking, et cetera, some of this infrastructure. What is the kind of collision course of those two efforts coming together if there is one look like if we're sitting here in a couple of years when some of these projects in Web3 materialize? some of the infrastructure in fintech materializes, are we going to see this this beautiful marriage or some sort of new Cambrian explosion of innovation around there? I think it might come down to a catalyst. So to answer that, I'd, I'd say if we see a major financial event, like a currency goes into complete hyperinflation, the government wobbles, 
or something major happens, I think you're going to see a big shift, like, like a tectonic plate shift into crypto, its adoption, fintech compatibility with it. And I bundle the banks into that and insurance companies as well. I think you're going to see that. But without something like that to really shake up things, I think it's going to take some time. One of the areas that we spent time together in was around the convergence of gaming and finance or what they call play-to-earn games. Does that remain a big major theme in Web3 and how is the overall gaming economy taking shape? From my experience, and you know, I've met a lot of games, I've met a lot of studios and had some really deep conversations in Paris as well. My thesis on this is that play-to-earn worked really well. Yeah, you could probably talk about the, the NFTs themselves and the economy around them, but the actual, you look at the games themselves, they made a lot of money. To me, that's what, isn't that what the games are trying to do? Whether or not it was sustainable over the long, long haul, that's a different question to me. And I think it's what I'd like us to do is break the frame and go, why does it have to look like a Web2 game? Why does it have to monetize the same way? I don't think it does. I actually completely don't think it does. I think you've got a different model where you've got a smaller subset of customers with much bigger tickets. You know, like these sort of, you know, games, they have one, two, three, four, five million players, but only 0.001% of them are actually spending any money. And when they do spend money, they're spending dollar, two dollars, three dollars, four dollars. Some of them and even the, the smaller niche are spending you know, 100, 200, 300. And then you've got this real, you know, power law sort of graph. Whereas in Web3, you've got, say you've got 5,000 customers, all of them have spent 550 bucks or 100 bucks buying an NFT. <laughs> you know, like that's a big ticket, you know, just to begin. And then you've got the game that starts and goes on from there. So I think the model's worked. I think it just needs to be reframed as to what does work and to play into that and lean into that. I think that's where the innovation is going to happen. When we start to rethink these models, and I think the new model and you know, what I'm a big proponent of is this, what I call play to win, where you're playing and you've paid money, but you're there to win a bigger ticket. You're there to go get a chance with your skills to go and win something. And this exists and has existed for a long period of time, but just never so efficiently and beautifully than in Web3, where you've got this game that plays out of financialization and then you have a game of skill that attaches to it in some way, shape or form. And this game plays out in a much shorter time period. You know, it goes up and then it comes back down. I just think the products need to adapt to that as opposed to another Fortnite or another first person shooter or a strategy or an idol. It needs innovation. It needs rethought, reframing to lean into this new paradigm that's been proven. And I think play to earn is the marketing tactic, which is essentially decentralized distribution. So they're paying centralized places, Google, app stores, advertising networks. You're paying the customer in marketing. You just give them your marketing budget. And that is probably all very controversial, those thoughts. But it's, it's, it's where I think I have very strong conviction around that's where it's going to go. One of the promises was it's also going to be an elegant on-ramp into more mass adoption of crypto wallets, and in general, just the financialization of a whole bunch of people in Web3 that weren't already was to come into the gaming world, come into play-to-win games or play-to-earn games from there. Are you starting to see that as a big on-ramp still and sort of starting to see maybe the offshoots of a person in a Web3 game starting to adopt other parts of the Web3 universe? A hundred percent. Someone who made some money in Axie played Axie or played a bunch of other games, made some money, 
they're immediately interested in Web3 because they, you know, they bought food with it. And what you naturally see is they will go and look at where did this all come from? And they'll probably start with the blue chips, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and sort of go from there. And then the curious ones normally go to like, how does this actually work? What is going on here? And the rabbit hole just sort of begins. I think there's a lot of this is new customer that's out there, which is a kind of like a financially enabled person who lives in a third world country that got a, you know, a lucky break. They, they minted a board eight when it was a hundred bucks to mint. They just held it and they made 200, 300 grand and they got the ape coin distribution. And, and I think there's a lot of these people, a lot. And I think we under, undervalue it. And it's the new kind of class of democratized risk where they can have access to these opportunities. And I think that's a growing channel where crypto is much, much better than, than the stock market to go and do these things because you have access directly to opportunities that in stocks, a lot of these people, someone living in the Philippines isn't going to get access to the next big IPO. They're just not. They're not going to get access to the Google, Facebook IPO when it happened or it's just not going to happen. Maybe, but like they've got a big queue in front of them. Whereas in crypto, I believe with their extra time and effort and contribution, they can get that access. And I think you're going to see in particular in this next bull market, an even bigger echelon and group of cohort of people who made money last time will come back in again and they're going to be, it's going to be even bigger. We're coming up on time here, Fred, and I want to share a little bit of your knowledge with the emerging founders out there. If you were a founder starting or embarking on building your first fintech startup or a fintech startup in this space, what advice would you give down to them at the moment? What might be challenging for first-time founders is just how hard it is to gain attention and to really assign a good chunk of time and budget to it, particularly with growth and you know a community distribution i think that's undervalued and it's it's easy to undervalue it great advice thank you so much fred been really fun to to chat and to wander through all of the thinking on on the financial ecosystem so thanks for joining me today thank you so much and thanks everyone for listening they found a great podcast here it was great to understand what the next generation financial system could look like from such an authentic entrepreneur and original thinker like fred his appetite for innovation takes him down all kinds of paths which result in profound insights as well as the weird and the wonderful. Now, Fred is prolific on social channels, so you can hear more from him on Twitter at Shebesta, S-H-E-B-E-S-T-A, or join his 100,000 plus fans on TikTok, if you like, at Fred.Shebesta. Be sure to check out his book as well. He's written the book called Go Live, which is 10 principles to launch a global empire, and he's clearly done that. If you're launching a software startup in the financial areas discussed today, I'd love to hear about it. You can email me on danieldarling at focal.vc. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and please subscribe to the podcast to listen to more coming down the pipe. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day.